The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we'll be welcoming back author Laura Snyder to talk about her new book on some of the optical innovations that revolutionized how we see the world and the people behind them. But first, we have some exciting news about us. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, And I'm Rochelle Saunders. Now, recently we sent out uh, sort of an invite to the audience asking you to complete a listener feedback survey. Uh, so we want to talk about that and the results. Um, but first of all, I feel like maybe some of you need a bit of background on the show, especially for people who are recent listeners. So, the show started in 2009 uh, in the basement of CJSR Radio on the University of Alberta campus in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, and that was as a radio show called Q Transmissions. So, of our current team, uh, the only person that's been there almost as long as me is Ryan. And, uh, Rochelle, when did you come on the scene? My first episode was in 2011, uh, and I was a guest host because you were going to be away for three weeks, and I was terrified. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, that was a great vacation. <laughs> so uh, we changed our name to Skeptically Speaking in the spring of 2009, and then again to Science for the People in uh, in fall of 2013. And we feel like both those names really reflected the evolution of the show, as it were. So what we want to talk about today is uh, more evolution and where the show is going. So, Rochelle, can you talk a bit about uh, the audience feedback survey? Yeah, we received a ton of really great feedback. And thanks to everybody who took the time. It was really awesome to look through your responses. Um, and it's, I think, the first time we've ever done a feedback survey. Is that correct? Oh, yes. That was your idea. That's why. Uh, Great idea. <laughs> so one of the most interesting sections was the topic preference question. And I got to say, y'all are all over the board with this. It was really, really interesting. One person's favorite episode topic is another person's least favorite episode topic. So I think what we take from that is that diversity is key here. So we're just going to keep doing that. And then we also asked you a question about the funding of the show. And that question is actually interesting to me because this is the first time I've really realized that um, many of you don't know that this is a volunteer-run show. Yeah, that's one thing that has been consistent, I think, for the entire run of the show is the team, no matter who we've been um, and we've changed throughout the years, we've always been a group of dedicated, super nerdy volunteers. Um, Science for the People from the beginning has really been a passion project for us. And, but for reference, though, we all do have day jobs. <laughs> we, we definitely do this as a hobby. And, and I should say that we've actually never accepted donations to this show. We have done some fundraising for CJSR, uh, especially when we were solely being broadcast uh, on CJSR, but, but never for the program. We've also never charged carriage fees. And for those of you who don't know what those are, it's essentially a fee a radio station usually pays to a radio show in order to broadcast that show on their airwaves. And since we air mostly on community radio and campus radio, it's been really important to us to keep those free. Um, the other thing we've never done is actually have advertising or any kind of sponsorship of the show. 
So via the survey, we have realized that pretty much the most actively unwanted method of raising money is through advertisements, which is great because that's how we feel too. Yeah, we really don't want to become beholden to sponsors or advertisers because we worry that that would consciously or subconsciously change either the topics we talked about on the show or the way we talked about topics on the show. And that's not fun for anyone. Damn the man. One of the things you didn't mind was the idea of affiliate links. So in particular, links to books on providers like Amazon or Audible that you can follow in order to buy one of the books we've talked about on the show and maybe give us a little kickback in doing so, which we appreciate. Now, something that you actually seemed genuinely excited about, which, thank goodness, uh, was uh, the idea of us doing some crowdfunding. So crowdfunding is really cool because it's basically putting, making us beholden to you, the listener, the people who are really excited about what the show is and the what we're putting out there every week. So all that said, the show is going to be changing a bit, just a bit. But do not worry if you listen to the program on iTunes or if uh, you listen on one of the radio stations that rebroadcasts us, you will hear basically no difference uh, on the episodes. Uh, we will follow the same format and we will be covering the same fairly random science-based topics. But what we're going to be doing is offering you the chance to get more out of your Science for the People experience, all while helping to support the show. So we are going to be adding an affiliate link section to the website, and we're calling this section our bookshelf, and it is exactly what it sounds. It's going to be all of the books we've ever talked about on the show with easy links for you to follow in order to find those books on places like Amazon.com and Audible. And if you buy those books at those places, we get a little kickback. We're also going to be starting a Patreon, and Patreon is a crowdfunding service that lets you essentially become a monthly sponsor of the show for whatever amount you're able and willing to send our way. It can be a dollar a month and any amount is um, humbly appreciated. What's really cool about Patreon is that it also allows us to give something back to those people who decide to help us out. And we have started collecting with some of the guests that we've already interviewed some little extra bits that won't appear in the regular episode, but that we're going to put up on the Patreon feed for Patreons only. And we really think you'll like those a lot. And we will also be offering the occasional behind-the-scenes, let's call it blooper-esque reel, uh, where you can hear what Desiree and I sound like when we haven't been polished by one of our wonderful editors. And I should point out uh, that during that extra bit, that's where I tend personally to ask the more political questions or the more risque questions. So uh, I think that's a great time. And every once in a while, we do stray slightly farther away from strictly science topics, but we try and keep them as sciencey as possible. So we really do hope that you'll want to support the show uh, because it would very much help offset the ridiculous amount of work and money that we put into the program. Uh, but let's be clear, even if you don't want to support us, we are still doing this anyway because uh, we love this show. Because with this show, um, we are selfish, Rochelle and I. We, we have the ability to talk to authors uh, of the books that we love and specifically about the stuff that probably wasn't included in the book. And we can focus on people uh, who aren't the big names in science communication and in science. We want to showcase the work, I guess, that is not as sexy. We can talk about things that nobody else is talking about. Um, and we try... 
and present as much as possible the conversation as we had it. We don't like to soundbite people. That has very much been a part of the show from the very beginning. And we try to internalize the shut up and listen mentality as much as possible with the show. So like Rochelle mentioned earlier, uh, it's really important to us to keep the show free for all the community and campus radio stations that we broadcast on. And at this point, that's 30 campus and community radio stations. So campus and community radio is something that's actually really important to me. Community radio stations broadcast to people who we will probably never reach uh, via the science section of iTunes. And campus radio is actually even more important because the students on those campuses that are listening between classes, those are the people that are going to be running our country soon. And I think it uh, it helps us all and it helps our societies to make sure that those folks are as educated about science and critical analysis and evidence as they can possibly be. So to those of you who love us and who have been with us since the beginning, and especially to those of you who have been around longer than I have, if you love the show and if you want to see us keep going strong, uh, we would be so appreciative if you would visit the Patreon and throw us a buck or five or whatever you're able to. And for those of you who can't because you're students, because you just don't have it in your budget, that is totally cool. We love you so much. Thanks for your support all. And as always. Thanks for listening. And now, to the interview. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Laura J. Snyder, historian, professor, philosopher, and writer. She was previously on the show to talk about her book, The Philosophical Breakfast Club, which I loved, and her TED Talk on that has been viewed over one million times. She's back today with her new book, Eye of the Beholder, Johannes Vermeer, Antony Van Leeuwenhoek, and the Reinvention of Seeing. Welcome back, Laura. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So first off, what time period does this book mainly deal with? It's the 17th century, known as the Golden Age of the Dutch Republic. Now, you say in the book that that period is distinguished above all by the rampant realization that the world is not or not only as it seems to be. Can you explain that? Well, something really amazing was happening in the Dutch Republic at this period. Both artists and scientists were using mirrors, lenses, and instruments made with them to see the world in a new way. And this enabled them to realize for the first time that there was more than meets the eye, that there was an invisible world that was not accessible to naked vision. And so they saw the world in this completely new light, um, showing them that you could see more than you could have ever imagined seeing before. But now we're not just talking about science here. Uh, why did you write a book that not, that's not only about how scientists were able to use the new optical inventions, but, but also how artists took advantage of them? Well, there were a couple of reasons why um, I, I went in this direction. One is, in my last book, The Philosophical Breakfast Club, I explored the moment when uh, a split happened between science and the humanities and, and science and art in particular. And that was something that I, I thought was good for science in the sense that science became very professional. And I talked about that in the book, the professionalization of science, the rise of science as a discipline. But it was bad because it sort of split off science from the rest of culture. And today we see that with people thinking you can't 
really be good at science and art, that you, you need to choose one, this idea of, you know, left side brains, right side right. brains, and the idea that the general people can't really understand science because it's something so abstruse and difficult and only people trained in science can understand it. So I wanted to go back to a time where art and science were not considered as two completely different disciplines, but really seen as being the same type of, of endeavor. And in the 17th century, in the Dutch Republic, that's the way it was. Artists and scientists were doing the same sort of thing, and they saw themselves as engaged in the same kind of project. They both considered themselves investigators of the visible world, you know, examining nature as it appeared to us. And that was something I just found irresistible. And scientists actually trained as artists, correct? Yes, there was a lot of overlap and uh, intermingling of these of these different professions. Um, so, for example, Galileo, um, he's fascinating because he turned the telescope to the skies. He was not the one to invent the telescope. He was not the first one to look at the moon with the telescope. But when he did uh, improve the telescope and turn it to the heavens, he saw these blotches on the moon's surface, which we could even see with the naked eye on a full moon. You sort of see there are some dark spots and light spots. But he saw with the telescope that those were shadows cast by mountains and craters. And this was the first time it was really recognized that the moon was very similar to the surface of the earth and that the moon was not made of some kind of unique celestial substance the way Aristotle and earlier astronomers had claimed it was. But other people had seen the blotches on the moon as well, both with the naked eye and through a telescope. They had not recognized that those blotches were shadows and the reason Galileo did was because he had trained as a painter in his youth. And he saw that through the telescope, he could see that those blotches looked like the way an artist would represent shadows on a curved surface. And that was because of his training in perspective theory. And artists of the time were particularly interested in uh, finding more out about the natural world as well. They were, um, especially in the Dutch Republic. There was the idea suddenly that painters should start from observation, that they should go out and observe landscapes and seascapes and make sketches or take visual notes and then come back and paint. Not just paint from a kind of idealized view in their minds of what the landscape or seascape looks like. Still life painters of the time were those beautiful Dutch flower paintings that we all think of when we think of the Dutch golden age of painting. The painters were taking magnifying glasses. In fact, even before scientists were using magnifying glasses and microscopes, the painters were the ones who were using magnifying glasses to look at flowers so carefully and depict them so realistically, to look at insects that they sometimes put in those flower paintings, the slugs, the snails, the dragonflies, to get so much detail. In fact, some of those uh, painters painted series of insects and small animals, and those are considered really the first anatomical studies of small animals because they were so detailed that they gave later scientists information that they did not have about those creatures. 
Now, we've mentioned the, the Dutch Republic a number of times, and, and the book mainly deals with that area, and specifically with, uh, with one city, Delft. So what was going on there at this point? Delft was a lively town. It was fairly small, about 20,000 people, but it had many important industries. It had the famous Delft pottery works uh, that made that wonderful blue and white Delft ware that became very famous uh, throughout Europe. Uh, there were many breweries uh, that made uh, beer that was shipped all around Europe as well. And it was a lively shipping town in the ports that would go out uh, into the larger uh, harbor towns uh, that could send uh, items throughout Europe and, and the rest of the world as well. Um, and so there was a, a wealthy merchant class that had disposable income. And one way they used that income was to buy decorative goods like pottery, but also paintings. So there were many painters drawn to Delft because they knew they would be able to sell their wares there. And in addition, this merchant class became very keen on collecting curiosities from all over the world. And they would collect them in these cabinets of curiosity. So they might have interesting seashells and uh, fossil pieces, although they weren't really, um, wasn't really known what they were uh, exactly. They would have old Roman coins and even uh, sort of body parts <laughs> um, that had been dissected and dried in various ways. Um, and they would collect these and sort of look at them and try to learn about the world and show them off to their friends. Uh, there were public dissections in Delft where the medical doctors would dissect humans and people would watch that and learn about uh, what was inside the human body. So it was a very interesting place at the time. There was money. There was an interest in collecting, and there was also this interest in sort of looking, observing uh, the world inside the body, um, and, and trying to understand what nature really was like. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Laura J. Snyder, author of Eye of the Beholder. So as with your last book, uh, you have provided us with a very vivid cast of characters. So let's start with uh, Johannes Vermeer. Who was he? Well, Vermeer uh, was the son of someone who um, originally kept an inn. And uh, inns were very lively places. People would come and drink beer. Uh, painters, uh, artists would go there a lot, um, I suppose it's not for nothing. There's a stereotype of artists drinking a lot and having a lot of fun together, and they were they were in inns. Um, and sometimes they would go there to make sales. And so many times in this period, innkeepers would also become art dealers. And uh, Johannes Vermeer's father started dealing in art. So he had an inn. Painters would come in and sort of give him their paintings on consignment, and he would sell them. And Vermeer uh, grew up in this milieu of painters, uh, and eventually he became one and apprenticed with, with someone. We don't know who his master was, uh, but we do know that he registered as a member of the Delft Painters Artists Guild, which means he must have studied with some master painter. Um, I think he went to Amsterdam for at least part of that time, but there's no solid documentary evidence uh, of that. And which works would we know him for now? 
Well, of course, there's the wonderful uh, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, his works of women engaged in quiet domestic tasks, pouring a pitcher of milk, a woman with a, the milkmaid, uh, his letter pictures, women reading letters quietly, uh, women in blue reading a letter. Um, I think... Uh, if you think of Vermeer, you think of these wonderful paintings where we come and we're eavesdropping on a woman who's involved in a project deep in her thoughts, uh, and we somehow feel that we are uh, stumbling upon this very private moment. Now, his, his paintings are beautiful, but why was he included in the book? He was included in the book because, uh, like Leeuwenhoek, and like many of the painters in Delft at the time, Vermeer was engaged in optical experiments. Like no other painter, Vermeer's paintings are about seeing, about the way light allows us to see under different optical conditions. And uh, when you think of these, these paintings of Vermeer, you think of the play of light and shadow and color. Um, and I believe very much that Vermeer came to this point of being able to paint like this because he was studying optical phenomena very much similar to the way that Leeuwenhoek was doing that. Now, there is some pretty intense speculation that he used a camera obscura uh, to do his work. So maybe let's start out. What's, what's the history of the camera obscura? Well, a camera obscura started out as an optical principle known even in ancient times, that if you have a very small opening coming into a dark area, an image will be projected through that small opening of what is outside. So later on, by the 13th century for sure, people were creating these dark rooms where there was a small hole in a shutter or a wall, letting in the only light into the room. And on the wall opposite the small hole, an image of what was outside would be projected, but upside down. It was an inverted image. And these dark rooms generated the name camera obscura because camera obscura means dark room. Um, by the, the 13th century, these rooms were used to observe solar eclipses and sunspots because even then astronomers knew you really shouldn't stare at the sun <laughs> because you would go blind. This en enabled them to observe the progress of a solar eclipse or uh, the movement of sunspots around the surface of the sun by looking at the projection of the sun on the wall that was being cast through uh, the aperture, the small hole uh, entering into the room. By the 16th century, someone came up with the idea of adding a spectacle lens, a lens that had been, you know, that was used for glasses into that hole. And then the image became sharper, the image that was projected. And suddenly in manuals of painting at the time in the 16th century, you see the camera obscura being suggested as an aid to painters that they could see the image on the wall of a camera obscura and either trace over it or just observe it to see how the image looked. And uh, then eventually 
that whole idea of a room was shrunken down into a box. So you would have a a wooden box with a small tube coming out with a lens in the tube projecting an image on either the back wall of a box or it would be projected on the top of the box by the use of a mirror. And then you could see the image from outside by looking at the top of the box with, um, you know, a, a cloak or blanket over your head so that the entire area was still dark, like a dark room. So then what would Vermeer have been able to see with a camera obscura that he wouldn't have been able to without it? Well, I think he used a camera obscura to examine how light worked. So some people believe that he projected an image onto a wall or a canvas and then traced on that. Um, I don't think so. I think he used it to learn about optical phenomena and optical qualities. So for instance, one thing he learned from the camera obscura, in my opinion, is how tone works. I don't know if if this was as big in in Canada, but the whole, is the dress blue? Is it white? Very much Um, so. (laughs) So that was about tone. That is, color looks different under different conditions of light. Vermeer already knew about that. He would not have had any confusion about the blue dress or the white dress. And what tone is, uh, so say you are looking at a white shirt. Uh, In sunlight, it looks white. If you're wearing that same white shirt and you go into a dark forest, the shirt doesn't look white anymore um, because there's not the same light. But if we see someone wearing a white shirt go into a dark room or go into a dark forest, we still see the shirt as white because our mind compensates. Uh, We know that it's the same shirt, so we see it as the same color. And typically, painters would paint that way. Um, If they wanted to paint someone wearing a white shirt in a dark area, they would still paint it as white. Uh, But with Vermeer, uh, with a camera obscura, you see the differences in tone under different conditions of light. Um, And we see Vermeer using that in his paintings so that in the same painting, a woman's Uh, white fur on her jacket at the top of the jacket, which is in sunlight, he would paint that in white. And then later, lower down where it's more in shadow, he would use browns and grays to paint that same fur. Um, So that's something that he would have learned looking through a camera obscura that he would not have learned looking at the fur of the jacket with his naked eyes, because his eyes would adjust, his mind would sort of compensate and he would see it as white all the way. Um, another thing he, he learned, I think, from using a camera obscura was how to be a master at portraying proper perspective. Um, in his earlier paintings, Vermeer had trouble with perspective. You know, perspective is a way of taking a three-dimensional image and showing it on a two-dimensional canvas. And that's very, very hard to do. And painters in Vermeer's time had various methods for doing this. But in his earlier paintings, Vermeer had trouble. And um, in his very early Diana and her nymphs, there's a golden bowl at the bottom 
of the picture where uh, Diana's feet are being washed by her nymphs. And that picture, that bowl looks like it's about to slide out of the picture. Um, He just can't get it right. Um, Similarly, in A Maid Asleep, where there's a, a maid sleeping on her arm and on her hand, and um, she's propped up on a table that has all these carpets on it. Um, and there's a bowl of fruit sitting on the table, and, and Vermeer could not get that right either. He painted that over and over. We could tell by x-ray analysis. And finally, he just put all these carpets on the table um, to hide the fact that, you know, he, he, we, when we look at that picture, we have no idea where the table even is. So he found it difficult, as many painters did, to portray proper perspective. Suddenly, in the 1660s, his pictures are perfect uh, in terms of perspective. Um, Every single part of the picture meets up at the vantage point um, where all the the lines converge to make a a proper perspective picture. Um, And I think looking at an image on top of a, a the box of a camera obscura would have been helpful to Vermeer because what that does is it shows you the three-dimensional image you're looking at on a two-dimensional surface, the piece of glass at the top of a camera obscura. And I don't think Vermeer needed to trace that when he was looking at it, but he would see, oh, that's how I could get that bowl of fruit to look like it's really on the table. So we should just be clear, this is, though, speculation. This is indirect evidence because there there is no direct evidence that a camera obscura was used by him. No, we have no direct evidence really of any painter in the Dutch Republic at this time. There's very little written information. None of them kept diaries. There are very few contemporary sources. Uh, We know that some of the painters, we know uh, Garrett Dow, who is painting at this time, uh, used a concave lens in a frame to look at at paintings uh, because someone wrote about that. Otherwise, we have very little information. Um, the, The evidence is really only in the paintings themselves. Um, and I'm, I'm very clear in the book. It's, it's speculation. Um, I'm a historian. I'm not making things up. I'm not going to say I have evidence that I don't have. But I think the evidence from the paintings is very persuasive. Now, this is, this is interesting to me because uh, am I correct in, in also seeing another implication uh, in your book that, that if people would have been open about uh, their use of, of not just the camera obscura but sort of any optical lens, it's, it's almost – it would be viewed as cheating in a sense. Is that correct? There was a longstanding view. We see it in Michelangelo's views. We see it in uh, Da Vinci that somehow to use an instrument to help you draw would be a form of cheating. And we even see that today. I've even seen it in people's responses to my book. Some people um, are very, very upset at the idea that any of these painters might have availed themselves of optical devices um, because there is this idea that the that painting is a fine art that requires only the hand or the eye of the artist. Um, there's a story about Michelangelo that um, that he said, uh, "I need only the instruments in my eyes uh, to paint." So there is a, a kind of a, a feeling that that would be viewed as cheating. However, what's different about the the Dutch Republic in the 17th century is um, it was such an empirical age. Everybody 
it seems, was interested in making observations, in paying attention to the world as, as it seemed visually. You know, painting all of a sudden became about seeing, not uh, telling a story, uh, like in the Italian narrative tradition, not telling a Bible story or a story from, from an ancient myth, but really just capturing how something looks at a particular time. Um, and so I think that painters at that time were much more open to the idea of using lenses and mirrors and camera obscuras because they, like the scientists of the time, were really interested in examining the world as it looked to us. And one of the foremost theorists of painting, uh, Samuel van Hoogstraten, uh, said that painting is a sister of natural philosophy or a sister of science because like the scientists, the painters should be investigators of the visible world. Stay tuned for more Science for the People and the book Eye of the Beholder with author Laura J. Snyder after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and my guest today is Laura J. Snyder, professor at St. John's University in New York and the author of Eye of the Beholder, Johannes Vermeer, Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek, and The Reinvention of Seeing. All right, so on to the other main character, um, one that many of our, our less artistic and more science-focused listeners might be more familiar with. Uh, that's that's Leeuwenhoek. So how, why do we know him? Let's start there. Well, Leeuwenhoek was amazingly the first person to see microscopic life, which hadn't ever even been imagined before. Um, and I just find this so exciting to talk about and write about because, you know, Galileo saw that the moon had craters and mountains, and that was revolutionary um, because that proved or, or gave evidence for the Copernican theory that the earth was not at the center of the universe, the sun was, and the earth was just a planet. So all the other celestial bodies like the moon and the other planets would be much like the earth. Um, so I don't mean to minimize that. But with the telescope, mainly, it was realized that the universe was vast, much vaster than it had been imagined. There were many, many more stars than people had ever thought. Um, but it was kind of like more of the same. <laughs> um, but with the microscope, a whole new world was discovered that no one had ever even thought was there. So Leeuwenhoek is exciting and fascinating because he discovered this whole new world. Now, he, unlike all of the, the gentlemen that you, that you wrote about in the Philosophical Breakfast Club, uh, who showed scientific brilliance from an absolutely ridiculously young age, uh, Leeuwenhoek discovered science later in life, correct? Yes. Um, he started out working as a haberdasher. Um, he sold cloth. Interestingly, Vermeer's father, before he became an innkeeper, was also a cloth salesman. Um, but Leeuwenhoek apprenticed with a relative, uh, well, a relative found a place for him in Amsterdam with a cloth salesman, and Leeuwenhoek apprenticed there. 
he had experience for the first time using a magnifying glass while he was apprenticed with this cloth salesman because um, the cloth salesman would use magnifying glasses to examine the thread count and the quality of the weave of cloth. And that's how they could tell how fine a cloth was and what its value was. So that would have been the first time that Leeuwenhoek used a device that allowed him to see more than you could see with the naked eye. But then he went back to Delft and he married and he opened up a shop and he sold cloth. We have two receipts in his hand for cloth and ribbon uh, that he sold. But then he was appointed to a position in the city government and uh, as uh, the sort of warden of the chamber of the city council. And uh, so he was responsible for keeping that chamber clean and making sure there was a fire and probably other tasks um, as well. And then he gave up selling cloth and started making microscopes. Which it seems sudden. <laughs> it, it, does, it does seem sudden. Um, but, you know, lenses were all around him because in addition to the other industries that I mentioned in Delft, there was a growing glassmaking industry and lensmaking industry. And uh, at this time, lenses were being sold all around Leeuwenhoek. So eyeglasses uh, had been spectacles, had been um, being uh, created since about the 13th century. So these would have been reading glasses. By the 15th century, people were making glasses that you could use to correct distance vision problems. And by Leeuwenhoek's time, sellers would sell these spectacles almost door to door. There's a wonderful painting by Rembrandt called The Spectacle Seller, where you see one of these sellers with a big box with uh, holding a box with a display of spectacles inside and an old couple, an old man and an old woman who are both really squinting like they can't even see anything are looking at the, le- the spectacles to, to buy some. So uh, they were displayed all around and Leeuwenhoek would have seen them. And there were other makers of lenses in Delft and in the Dutch Republic. It's unclear, though, what is the precipitating event that started Leeuwenhoek making lenses. Um, He said in the 1650s, the late 1650s, he started making bead lenses, which were very easy to make. You would take a, a rod of, a thin rod of glass and just hold it in a candle flame and little beads would, would drop down and then dry. Uh, and you would take the ones that were not too sooty, uh, you know, full of soot from the candle and grind them. Uh, and these could be used uh, as lens, tiny lenses in little holders. Uh, and Leeuwenhoek started making those. And actually, that's one of uh, the the speculations as to why he was able to be the first person to see microorganisms is he made really great lenses. He did make really great lenses. But I don't really think that's the reason he was the first, because others were making lenses that were equally good. But Leeuwenhoek was an amazing observer. First of all, he had patience like you couldn't believe. Um, It was so hard to look through his microscopes. And just to explain, he made microscopes that were single lens microscopes. I know when we think of microscopes, we all think of the kind we used in high school biology class that had two lenses in a tube 
kind of like a telescope and it would be on a stand and you would just sort of look down at your specimen that was held there conveniently. You wouldn't have to move that. You would just be, you know, dialing the dials to get the, the vision, the visuals right. Um, that's not the kind of microscope that Leeuwenhoek made. He would take his tiny, tiny little bead lenses and put them between two flat plaques of brass or silver that were about two to three inches long and maybe about an inch wide. Um, and uh, he would poke a little hole in each of these two flat pieces of brass, and he would put the lens in the middle and then solder uh, those, those pieces of brass together. And that was his microscope. And the specimen that he was looking at would be on a sharp spike that was in the back, uh, and it would uh, have a little point, and he would put his specimen on the little point, or he would have a tiny, tiny little tube that he would blow out of glass that was about the width of a hair that he could put a teeny drop of water in. And that's what he would use uh, to look through the lens at the specimen on the tiny uh, little point of this uh, stick behind. And the patience that was required for looking for hours and hours and hours at end in this very uncomfortable position uh, was amazing. Well, also, he was, he was intensely curious. Uh, you, have an, you wrote a number of, of pieces about what exactly he was looking through, but I do have to mention one, and it's very crass, but I think it's amazing. Um, he took a look at his own semen. But he made sure that he made it clear to the Royal Society uh, that it was gathered, and I quote, without sinfully defiling myself, it remains as a residue of conjugal coitus. Yes. Actually, um, what I find even more interesting than that is that he points out that it's less than eight beats of the heart after that moment. And so I I like to think about his wife. and anyway, she was probably quite game uh, when he rushed up to run to his microscope. But uh, yes, um, that was fascinating because at the time, nobody really understood how babies were made. Um, you know, to, to put it in a, in a silly way, um, nobody knew about sperm and egg and embryos. You know, people knew that animals and humans had sex and then reproduce so they they figured it had something to do with that but but they had no idea they certainly had no idea about insects and you know other other animals reptiles and so forth so this was a huge question at the time and what Leeuwenhoek did was look at the semen and see these sperm not only did he see these tiny little things, but they were moving, uh, which was amazing to people. So there was something in human semen moving around. Are these little animals in the semen, um, little creatures? What, what is that? Previously, um, other people working with microscopes had seen what they took to be eggs. So here for the first time was the idea that there are um, these two parts of generation, the sort of female egg and the male sperm, and that they could come together uh, and make a new being. What's amazing beyond looking at his own sperm is that Leeuwenhoek then went on to look at sperm in dogs, in roosters, in um, every kind of mammal 
uh, and bird you can imagine. And then also, and I found this rather interesting, cockroaches, aphids, um, all sorts of insects. So Leeuwenhoek almost single-handedly changed the study of generation, of, of how new creatures were created. Um, because before that, people really still thought that insects, worms arose out of muck. You know, maggots came out of dead bodies. Butterflies came out of decay. Nobody really understood how new creatures were made. Well, and he did have some trouble convincing other people of his findings, didn't he? They were having trouble replicating his findings? Yes. That was partly Leeuwenhoek's fault. Leeuwenhoek was very secretive about how he made his observations. He didn't talk about details about his microscopes. He did not talk about how he made his observations very much. And this was a problem for him. He announced his discovery of microscopic life to the Royal Society in one of his letters. Um, His letters were his main means of expressing his findings. Leeuwenhoek never wrote a book. He never wrote a scientific article per se. He wrote these letters to the Royal Society over 50 years, telling about his observations and discoveries. The Royal Society would have the letters translated into English because Leeuwenhoek wrote in Dutch and then read out parts of the letters during their meetings. And then the Royal Society would print parts of the letters in their journal, the transactions of the Royal Society. And this was really Leeuwenhoek's means of publishing his observations. Um, So he wrote a letter to the Royal Society telling about his observation of microscopic life. Um, This comes at the end of a 26-page letter. I love that. He starts out with observations of the optic nerve of a cow. He goes into... Um, a trip he took to England many years ago when he took a microscope with him and he observed the earth, the chalky earth on the cliffs. Um, and then he compares that to his observations of the earth in Delft. And he goes on and on and on about this. And then at the very, very end, he's like, oh, and by the way... <laughs> Um, And then he tells them about these observations of microscopic life. So the Royal Society has no answer to this. They do not publish that. It's not read out at their meeting, uh, which, you know, we know because we have the minutes of the meetings. Uh, Nobody answers that letter. I wonder if anyone even read to the end (laughs) of the letter, frankly. That's what I I was assuming. But finally, uh, and he keeps sending them other letters about different observations, Finally, a year later, he writes them another letter saying, um, remember a year ago when I told you, you know, about this, these op- my observations I made of microscopic life? Well, I've made more observations since. And then he goes on and he's very detailed about how he made observations. In this case, in the second letter, he had taken uh, peppercorns and infuse them in water and let them sit. And uh, then he saw microscopic creatures. He also infused other spices. Um, And this is a detail I just love from that letter. He had them all arrayed in his study in little teacups, Um, you know, not in flasks, not in little jars, but in teacups. And he tells the, the Royal Society how many 
uh, creatures there are in a drop of water um, because he has come up with this method for calculating the numbers. And the numbers are incredible, like 8 million little creatures in a, a tiny amount of water. And this time the Royal Society pays attention and they're amazed. And what they're mostly amazed about is the numbers. It's almost as if their first reaction is, okay, there could be microscope, there could be life that, that's not visible to the naked eye, but there can't possibly be that much of it. And they ask Leeuwenhoek to tell them how he made the observations and how he made his calculations. And he says, I can understand why you want this. Basically, he says, I can understand why you want this information. And if you had it, you would understand and you would believe me, um, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> And the Royal Society is not pleased. Um, and, and what's interesting is Leeuwenhoek is really in this older tradition of craftsmen keeping their trade secrets secret. Um, artists were like that. Right. Um, this is one reason why we don't have documents from Vermeer and his fellow painters explaining how they painted, uh, because painters of the time did not give away their secrets. And so uh, Leeuwenhoek is kind of in this older tradition. Scientists also didn't really give away their, their secrets for how they did their experiments. But he's kind of caught in a moment where that's changing. Um, the Royal Society is all about public understanding of, of methods, uh, of repeatability, of replication. Um, it's really the start of that idea that no longer is the scientist sort of like an alchemist um, coming up with, with theories and then uh, hiding his theories using symbolic language so that only the initiates can understand. Now the scientist is supposed to be more of, you know, a public figure letting all scientists in the community of scientists know how he came up with his results. And Leeuwenhoek is very reluctant to do that. And so the Royal Society does not really accept his observations until they get someone else at the Royal Society to somehow figure out how to replicate them. Um, and it's not until months later, um, in fact, almost a year later after that second letter, that Robert Hooke at the Royal Society has managed to replicate the observations and other members of the Royal Society are there. Robert Hooke shows them, they look through his microscope, they see the little creatures, they see them moving, and only then does the Royal Society say, yes, this microscopic life exists. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back with more of Laura J. Snyder and her book, The Eye of the Beholder, after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm here today with Laura J. Snyder, author of The Philosophical Breakfast Club, who has been talking to me about her newest book, The Eye of the Beholder, Johannes Vermeer, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, and the Reinvention of Seeing. So now I'm curious, because you wrote something in the book that I, that I really wanted to point out. Um, 
our beliefs influence what we see, and so the expectations of the scientists looking through a microscope would have had an effect on how they interpreted what they were seeing. Correct? Yes.、Um, it was very hard to use these devices. Galileo has a wonderful passage in a letter where he explained to someone that it was so hard for him to show people these shadows on the moon. Um, and have them see the sh- the blotches as shadows. That even when Galileo went with his own telescope, set it up, pointed it in the right spot, and people looked at it, they couldn't see what he saw through it. And he says in this letter, part of the problem is that just using the device is hard. He said、um, you have to avoid the shaking of your hand caused by the beating of your heart. You know, the circulation of your blood causes a little tremor in your hand. And he said, even if you can avoid that, there's the vapor coming off of your eyeball,、um, fogging up the lens, which actually does happen. So there were many reasons why it was difficult to use these devices, and because of that, because it wasn't just a trivial matter of you know picking up something and seeing through it, that you had to really learn how to use these devices. That's the first time this idea came into into realization that、uh, our beliefs influence what we see.、Um, since it is hard to use the devices, and we need to kind of train ourselves to use them,、um, so people who believed with all of their might that the old Aristotelian view of the universe was correct, that the Earth is at the center of the universe, and it's totally unlike anything else. So that all the planets, the moons, the sun, everything going around the Earth is made up of this shining, perfect substance that could have no imperfections, that could have no mountains and craters. If you really believe that, it was impossible to see the craters and mountains on the moon. It, it wasn't always that they were pretending they didn't see. It was very hard to see it. And Leeuwenhoek realized this. He himself, once he saw the sperm. He was convinced that all you needed to make a new creature was sperm.、Uh, the egg was just there to provide nourishment for the sperm. So he believed if he looked hard enough, he would find the little man inside the sperm, the homunculus. That the little creature,、uh, say the little human being, was fully formed inside the sperm, and all it needed was a was some nourishment and a place to grow, and it would turn into a baby. And he looked and he looked and he looked, and he never found the little man in the sperm. And finally, he said in his letters,、um, "I believe." It's there, but I can't see it, so I will not say that I see it, and I have to wait until I see it before I can assert that there is the little man there.、Um, so Leeuwenhoek realized you sometimes had to fight against your beliefs to see what was really there,、uh, rather than just seeing what you wanted to see. Well, now, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, but unlike the telescope, the microscope didn't lead to really immediate revolutionary discoveries. So, why was that? Can we dig into that? What was the difference? That's interesting. What happened in the first decades of the microscope's existence is that people were mainly looking at macroscopic objects, objects that you could see with the naked eye, but that were still very, very small. So they were using microscopes to look at small fleas, 
and uh, mites. People were fascinated, by the way, um, that the, what they thought was just dust on their cheese rind turned out to be little cheese mites running around. And they could see that with little magnifying glasses, but with microscopes, they could see detail of these mites, like little eyes and little legs. And that was fascinating to people because up until this time, most people believed that insects didn't really have such differentiated body parts um, because they had never seen it. So for the longest time, these people using microscopes, the microscopists, were focusing on insects. And they were fascinated by the eye of insects. So much of the early work with microscopes was looking at the, the eye of a fly or the, the eye of a mite. And there was something so incredibly interesting to these people about looking at the eyes of flies, partly because they hadn't really figured that flies had such fascinating parts, but also it was, it was almost as if they were trying to figure out how opti- natural optical systems work by using this new optical, artificial optical system, the, the microscope. Um, so for the longest time, they were just looking at macroscopic objects, but seeing them really up close. I think partly that's because nobody imagined there was anything else to see with a microscope. I mean, people knew there were stars that were so far away, you know, we probably couldn't see them with the naked eye. So that was not too surprising that they could see those with a telescope. But with a microscope, I think there was really no expectation at all that there was something to see with a microscope that you couldn't at all see with the naked eye. So we have these two gentlemen who have different ways of seeing, but definitely enhanced and, and completely new. So I, I cannot help but wonder when the next grand shift is going to happen. Any, any ideas? Rampant speculation is allowed? Well, even today, it's sort of on the spectrum of what they were doing. I mean, I, I think that what they did that's so important is to show us that not only that there's more than meets the eye, um, but that instruments can help us see more than we can see. And, and by doing that, they changed the notion of what seeing is. Seeing at this moment, you know, in, in time in the 17th century becomes not just what you do with your eyes, but what you do with instruments, um, even if it's difficult to see with them. And now uh, the result of that is every year or decade, we are developing new instruments for seeing in completely different ways. I mean, when x-rays were invented, that was almost as amazing to people as the existence of microscopic life, that you could see through things, that you could see bones inside someone's body. And now we have the Hubble telescope. We could see in the past, you know, we could see galaxies and stars that no longer even exist. And with PET scans, we can look inside our body and see metabolic activity of cells. I mean, it's amazing. So all of these new instruments for seeing, they continually change what it means to really see. Um, And I think that is a process that keeps happening. And it started with these fabulous discoverers in the 17th century, the scientists who were 
developing instruments to see what could not be seen with the naked eye, and the artists like Vermeer and his compatriots at the time who were seeing the world in a different way by using lenses and magnifying glasses and camera obscuras and were painting this new way of seeing for the first time. Laura, as usual, it is a pleasure to have you here. It's been so much fun. Are we finished already? (laughs) (laughs) That was an hour. (laughs) It's always wonderful to speak with you. Thank you. And we've linked to Laura J. Snyder and her book, Eye of the Beholder, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. <laughs>